carry nearly 80 gigs of data in my head. You're in the mainframe. It's eating through Greg's entire system. Access encoded. Gigabyte of RAM should do the trick. We're in. We're in. We're in. We're in. We're in. Hello and welcome to We're In, a podcast that gets inside the brightest minds in cybersecurity. I'm Bella Deshans-Cook. And I'm Jeremiah Rowe. Today, we're going to be talking to Robert M. Lee, CEO of Dragos Security. Is that Dragos or should it be Dragos? Dragos? Anyway, we'll figure this out in the episode. Robert is one of the leading experts on industrial control system cybersecurity and the many digital threats facing utility operators and other critical infrastructure. We'll get his take on that and other issues in InfoSec ransomware and issues like pay transparency and the cybersecurity diversity problem. First, a quick word from our sponsor. We're In is brought to you by Synac, the premier crowdsourced platform for on-demand security expertise. Synac delivers 24-7 pen testing, intelligence, and vulnerability management from a global network of vetted and trusted researchers. Their work is enhanced by smart technologies to accelerate your critical cybersecurity missions. Synac gives businesses the best chance of finding every vulnerability that matters. Find out more at synac.com. That's S-Y-N-A-C-K dot com. Thank you so much for joining our show. Um, I've personally been following you for quite a while, as well as uh, you, oh, I'm so sorry. your company. Um, <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I think it's a fantastic organization to begin with. Um, and and it's one of the things uh, I was originally looking at initially was uh, was you as well are also a former service member. Uh, is that is that correct? Yep. Yep. But I was in the Air Force. Where were you? I was Air Force. Yeah. I was, I, so I, <laughs> I was in the Marine Corps. Um, yes. Yeah. Mine doesn't. But count. no. <laughs> I mean, it does. It does. Right. Like I've got uh, I've got plenty of friends who are currently still serving in the Air Force. It's just a different yeah, mission. I, I was. I was. I was military curious. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I just signed up for the test it out phase. That's yeah. great. Um, and so thank you for your service. I wanted to make sure I said yeah, that. And um, uh, again, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. So thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, we're very excited to get to uh, to chat with you today. Um, I want to start out with a pretty simple question. Uh, could you clarify for us exactly how you pronounce the name of your company, please? Yeah, yeah it's Dragos. Like it's the long A. Dragos sells oysters in New Orleans. <laughs> Dragos sells hot takes and ICS security. It's yeah. funny you mentioned Dragos. the Dragos and the folks that sell oysters because uh, I've seen that video of the gentleman. <laughs> <laughs> it's good. They're good oysters. Like they're like they're really good. They're not like Maryland fresh like oysters, but charbroiled. They're 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 pretty good. You know. Do a lot of people get the pronunciation wrong or confuse you with the oysters? Uh, it, the the confusion of the oysters only comes on Google reviews, uh, <laughs> and we'll get it every now and then. We're like, super nice service, just didn't really like the oysters or something. You know, like that'll be like on our like HQ page, uh, which is hilarious to me. Every, we've had a number of oyster calls on our instant response call line. That's always fun. Um, the pronunciation, <laughs> I, I don't care. You know, there's a ton of people who pronounce it Dragos. I, my my thing is if there's not expletives, you know, around it, I don't really care how you pronounce it. Nice. Totally fair. Um, so getting into the, you know, actual more interesting questions, I suppose. Um, so I want to talk a little bit more about you, your background. Uh, you started focusing on industrial control system security 
while working for the National Security Agency, uh, kind of a while before a lot of others were really paying attention to cyber in this area. Uh, and I thought it would be pretty useful to start by talking about uh, some of the unique challenges facing critical infrastructure providers uh, and maybe like the key differences for security when you're, you know, considering a utility company versus a company like Facebook or Bank of America, for example. Yeah, sure. So yeah, it's been really interesting to see it evolve for sure. So I started my career, um, as mentioned, the Air Force side of the house, but I was tasked over to the NSA pretty early on and they didn't ask me to focus on ICS. They had, what they asked me to do was go find the unknown unknowns. And I was like, um what is that? And they're like, we don't know, but Rumsfeld's really big into it. I was like, oh, okay. You know, and so I was, I was like, go find the state actors we're not tracking today. And I was like, yeah, no problem. And so I, I had had a background in, in building control systems, not engineer by trade or anything, but, but um, I spent a short time doing like humanitarian projects in Cameroon and other places building like water filtration units and wind turbines and things like that. And, and so I really liked control systems. Like, so what are we, what are we doing on control systems? They're like, what are control systems? I'm like, oh, oh God, you know, they're they're <laughs> everywhere. You know, the the sinky things that you want to say stunk, those those submarines, that that's them. The floaty things you want to keep floating, that's that's on there too. Like, you know, it's it's everything. Um, and so they just kind of unleashed me to just say, yeah, sure, whatever, you know, dumb lieutenant, go for it, have fun. And uh, and uh, you know, what I found was we had this view in the government, I think this transcended to the private sector as well, of well, there's not really industrial threats. Yeah, that's why I focus on it. We're not seeing any attacks. Um, but when I dug in, what the reality was is we weren't collecting data out of industrial environments. We were collecting in the enterprise IT networks expecting to find industrial attacks. And that doesn't make any sense. Um, it's like the old intelligence parable when the, the drunk guy is underneath the, the light and he's looking for his keys and a cop comes by and says, hey, what are you doing? He's like, I'm looking for my keys. He's like, okay, well, you know, I'll help you. And then after 15 minutes or so, he's getting pretty frustrated in this dark alley. He's like, what, what's going on, man? Where'd you lose your keys? He's like, oh, over there. Well, why the hell are we looking in here? Well, this is where I can see, you know? And so that's, that's kind of the problem that has existed. So we adapted our collection, started getting into industrial networks, and we started finding everybody. Not only the, the state actors that you expected to find, but state actors we didn't even expect to have cyber programs at that time were already going after industrial environments. So it's pretty interesting from there. Um, when, you, when you talk about the kind of the key differences, um, I'm sure there's plenty and there's plenty of skill sets that you have in IT security that'll help you in OT security. Don't get me wrong, but um, but there's a real necessity to understand the mission. It's probably the first thing I would say. You know, what's this plant in the business of? Is it a you know water filtration plant? Is it a, uh, a rail switching yard? Is it a power generation site? What are, what are we trying to do here? So a lot of IT security folks, and I don't mean this in any wrong way, but a lot of IT security folks have our biases, right? Everybody does. You you know what works. You've done it for 20 years. Hey, I'm going to come into this place. And of course, I want to ask about a patch you know, management system. And you're like, no, 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 stop. Like, what are we trying to solve here first? Then figure out what actually makes sense based on your skills and, and what brings in then the unique ways you need to do it. And, and in a big hand wavy way, I'll say that IT security in the enterprise writ large is data security and system security. And those are very hard and they're very important. But it's how do I protect the data, encryption, encryption at rest, and transit, DLP, whatever else. How do I protect my systems, patch it, product security, endpoint protection systems, whatever else. How do I make sure I keep my assets off the internet, so, you know, tax service and all that kind of stuff. But basically, how do I protect the system, how to protect the data. And that drives a lot of what we've seen in product security and, and so forth. When you get into industrial security, whether you call it OT for operations technology or ICS, industrial control systems, it doesn't really matter. Industrial security, when you're dealing with that, 
What we care about is systems of systems, security, and physics. Everything that the adversary wants to be able to do is bound by the world of physics. Like, I'm going to open up this valve and kill 30 people. Well, no, the valve doesn't open that far, so that's not possible, so I don't care. Or, hey, actually, if you mix those two ingredients together, you're going to create an explosion. That matters a lot. Um, and then you care about system to system. So I don't care that the uh, control system itself, the like the little controller, I don't care that it has a vulnerability that lets you have a password on it or whatever. I don't know. Okay, what are you going to do with that? But can I get on an engineer workstation and change the logic on a controller in such a way that's going to impact a valve that impacts the physics? Okay, that system one plus system two plus system three, that matters. And whether you do it with the vulnerability of malware or native functionality that's resident in the environment, it doesn't matter. If you understand the operations and the engineering and the mission of that environment, and you can then learn the systems and navigate around that system of system security, you can hurt some people. And so that, that that's the, to me, the key difference is what are we trying to accomplish and break away from the system and data security to understand the systems of systems. So in an operational technology perspective or, or ICS systems attack, right? Um, what's one of the earliest compromises that come to mind for you that really took advantage of these kinds of devices? Yeah, probably the, I mean, there's so many like stories and so I'm going to give you answers and there's going to be someone online that's like, well, what about the Trans-Siberian Pipeline? No, that's completely BS. So there, there's there's a lot of stories out there that are fake. Um, but the probably one of the earliest ones that was real was an insider and it was the Marushi um, water services plant down in Australia. Uh, it was essentially a contractor or an employee, I don't know if he was an employer or a contractor, but he, he, he got fired yeah. and he was very unhappy about that. And uh, he got some equipment, basically, you know, equivalency of Radio Shack, going and getting some like uh, RF type equipment yep. to be able to access the control systems of the water plant, the sewage um, treatment plant. And he was able to manipulate the control environment to reverse the flow of sewage to empty it out into the, the, the rivers there um, in the town. And that to me is a classic. He knew the inside knowledge. He had an understanding of the operations and engineering. And so then it was about access and manipulation of systems of systems to be able to impact the physical environment. And that was, oh, I don't know, that was the either late 80s, or early 90s, probably early 90s. Um, and so then from then on, there was a lot of cases, but never really anything public. It was very hush-hush stuff of, hey, we have something going on here where the logic's changed across 20 substations. Can you come in and investigate? It was it was stuff that you didn't really talk about. And there was some of that reason that they didn't get talked about was, quite honestly, just the media would overreact to everything. A phishing email got sent to a power company. They're going to take down the grid. And it's like, there's not one grid, and that's not how that works. <laughs> um, and so there wasn't really an environment to have those conversations. It wasn't. There was no benefit to doing it. Um, the... Probably the next, you know, there was compromises and espionage. There was a lot of espionage. If you go back to even the old, like, Night Dragon cases or Operation Aurora and stuff like that with the RSA breach and similar, a lot of the companies that got hit and they're publicly named, like Dow Chemical and these others, the, the APT1 story from yeah. Andy has an example. You'll, you'll read those reports, and there's not a whole lot of mention of industrial and SCADA and DCS and all that stuff. But if you look at what they were taking and why they were targeting those companies in the first place, they were getting into those environments. But the people may have not had the skills to go into those sites, but also those big cultural divides of they weren't welcome into the plant inside of the house. So there's a lot of historical espionage cases that had an industrial flavor that just wasn't properly explored. 
But the, 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 the case that everybody says, and of course we can't get through any discussion of ICS without dropping the S word, but you know, Stuxnet comes up in 2009, 2010 timeframe. Yeah, that's the one that um, I was thinking of uh, initially. That's, that's yeah, what drew my attention. It, it it had a net benefit in some ways of getting people interested yeah. in industrial, so that's good. Um, and but there was also this sort of like, well, that of course the United States and Israel could do this, and of course they do it to somebody else, <laughs> but nobody could do it to us. So so nothing really changed after that. Um, there was interest, but nothing really. I don't think anything was massively changed. The one that really changed things in a way, uh, the next one that was probably pretty big was 2014. There was an attack on a German steel facility. It caused massive physical damage across the plant. Um, but the one that really changed the discussion was the 2015 um, attack on the electric system Ukraine. in Ukraine. Yeah. That was the, yeah, that was the one that I got to um, be involved in, and that was cool. Um, but that one changed the discussion for a very simple reason. And it was at the national policy leader level, there was always an expectation that critical infrastructure was a red line. And yeah, you know, okay, a nuclear enrichment facility, but it's really a military facility that count, you know, that doesn't count for anything. But civilian electric power, what? And, and so it was sort of this head fake moment for a lot of the community. And when it happened originally, I remember, and I don't, again, I'm not trying to put anybody down here, but I remember the US government's original response was, don't worry, that can't happen here. And there was a lot of downplaying of it. And Mike Asante, Tim Conway, and myself, did kind of a road show out in the community of, oh, yes, it can. And this is exactly the way that it would look. And some elements may be different in the recovery, maybe harder to do on the front end, but like manipulating control of a distributed control system yeah. Yeah, or a distribution management system, of course you can. And, you know, a lot of credit to the power companies because it was the power companies and their CEOs that originally came out and said, well, hey, Congress, White House, we hear you. But, um, Yes, you can. Like you could absolutely do that here, and they're the ones that got the, the narrative changed. Then it just accelerated. 2016, you see it again. 2017, you see the first ever cyber attack to target human life take place in Saudi Arabia. 2018, 19, 20, you see uh, you know dozens of compromises across uh, infrastructure in the way that would not be espionage, but would actually be prepositioning. 2020, you have solar winds. Everybody's talking about the IT side of it, but actually that was, you know, there was OEMs, original equipment manufacturers yeah. getting compromised. You had an adversary have remote bi-directional access to gas turbine software systems across the planet. And it's just, it, so it's kind of just blown up in the sense that people are realizing like, uh-oh, we haven't done all the things we thought we did at a time that the adversaries are going, oh, well, there's not a whole lot of reasons not to do this. You know, there's no, you know, warheads on the foreheads coming from compromising an electric system, all this bluster that's been done over the years. No, no, no. I think uh, I think this is a completely viable target for geopolitical concern as well as intellectual property. And so that that's that's kind of where we are today. So I think um, to your point that there have been a lot of misconceptions around how this affects uh, whether it be IT or OT and how it implements together. Um, we're seeing an incremental shift in how individuals ultimately think about this, right? With uh, MITRE developing the industrial control system uh, sort of uh, uh, implementation that can be utilized for uh, testing these devices, and then of course uh, with 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 you founding the company Dragos, and and then with Sands creating courses that you, by the way, uh, happen to be teaching on some of them. Um, what do we do, right? How do we prevent this stuff uh, from an industry perspective? Um, as an executive, 
how do I how do I focus more on these things if these things are in my environment? Yeah, so the first thing that must happen is there's got to be a board level conversation. And you can you can get your C-suite aligned first, that's fine. But but trying to solve it from buy a product, build a process, hire a person, you, you got to get aligned on the risk first. And, and that's going to be inherently a board conversation. And the mistake I see most companies make is they think the boards are stupid, quite honestly. They think, oh, they don't get cybersecurity. We gotta, we gotta, we gotta put it into a FICO score or something. You're like, guys, like they deal not only with risk scenarios all the time, they deal with like gap accounting of revenue. Like you yeah. tell me gap accounting is not complex, okay? Like they they're smart people. You just can't use your jargon. Um, and and so I don't like when I see folks get in front of boards and be like, there's 300,000 scans on the firewall, and we see here's our phishing protection, and here's what we're doing on VPNs. It's like, stop. What's the scenario? Are we a power company? Should we be prepared for a Ukraine-like scenario? Are we a manufacturing company? We should be prepared for an espionage scenario as well as a ransomware scenario. Like, what are the scenarios that we want to build in, get aligned on the risk? Then your C-suite and your CSO can come up with what are the protection, detection, and response mechanisms that we want to put around that. Maybe we choose a framework like NIST cybersecurity framework to be able to you know ground the conversation, whatever it might be. Then we can figure out what what the actual mechanisms are. But probably the biggest mistake I see beyond that is right now, and this actually is what's driving a lot of the shift, right now at the board level, they're getting views into cybersecurity. There's no critical infrastructure company that hasn't been talking about cybersecurity for the last 20 years. That's that's not new. But they're used to getting the, here's our patch rates, here's our detection rates, here's our NIST cybersecurity framework rates. Like in a good company, they're getting all those things. And they go, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we're good. Why are we talking about more investments? And and I had this experience recently in a Fortune 50 board. I got invited in to come brief on the threat landscape kind of stuff. And CEO, super smart guy, great board, CSO, great CSO, briefs that exact view. Here's the, all these things and this and all this. And look how great and wonderful we are. And it's like, yeah, yeah, this is great. And so the CEO turns to me like, see, Rob, you know, it's kind of like showing off like, what do you think about this? And I was like, I think your team needs lauded. They've done a lot of amazing work and they're, and they're absolutely doing the right things. Um, I, I would have told them if they weren't. I was like, they yeah. are. However, um, I called on the CS and I was like, are you saying enterprise like the enterprise? Or are you saying enterprise like enterprise IT? Yeah. And he's like, well, enterprise IT. And the CEO is like, eyes just open. I was like, wait, hold on. Do you mean that doesn't cover our plants? And he was like, yeah, no, no, no. That's the enterprise IT. And it just like the board erupted. And, and so there is an expectation at most companies that all of these things are being done. So why are board members, why is, why is the president of the United States last year coming out with an ICS-specific national security memorandum? Because they never thought they needed to, but it turns out they had to. So we've been talking about cyber at a presidential, international leader, board level for a long time. But they never knew they needed to differentiate between IT and OT. And now they're realizing all the resources have been spent on the non-revenue generating side of the business. And they're going, holy crap, um, what's our OT cybersecurity strategy? So the first thing is to make that awareness available, then get aligned on what the risk scenarios are. Then you dig in and go, okay, what are those controls? Understanding that most of the standards, frameworks, 
regulations, whatever, have a strong prevention bias. Um, we did the we did some work on this where we looked at every single regulation and framework out there and found that about 90% of all the controls were preventative in nature. Patch, passwords, AV, you know, that kind of stuff. So there's a lot of prevention bias in these standards that you never get to controls around detecting and responding, which means then you don't even have the visibility of what's happening in the environment, which means you don't even know what's in your environment, which means you're not applying prevention appropriately or watching it and atrophies over time anyways. So so for the CSOs, it's not only understand that OT is different, but understanding that a lot of the frameworks we might be using are pushing us towards a very IT-centric approach that even in the IT environment is probably pretty legacy. Yeah, I think that's pretty scary, right, from an executive's perspective, especially when you are running a company, you're dealing with a lot of the business aspects, and when you deal with these things, you have an expectation of, like you said, of of the enterprise being taken care of from the divisions that should be controlling those things. Um, and to your point, uh, when you first got started in this from the Air Force, you know, it's w- find what you don't know that you don't know. And, and that's a scary aspect when it comes to um, executives because they're relying on the individuals that are running the organization to inform them, to, um, to help them to understand where the gaps are. And in a lot of in a lot of cases, with this not being such a hugely uh, uh, focused on area within cyber or within the industry as a whole, um, it's left this weird gap. And 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 I think that's one of the reasons why you initially started Dragos, what, in 2016, right? Yeah. Um, and yep. it, it, it's exactly why. I, I came back from Ukraine. Like I, And I don't mean this against your company yeah. or any other company. We all love each other. But I have generally never in my life been like, I want to start a software vendor. You know, I always remember being on the client side and being like, here's what's coming in the roadmap. I'm like, no, it's not. This is how we use AI. I'm like, it's snake oil. You know, like I've never wanted to be a software vendor. But I came back from Ukraine and did all these briefings. And then as they started talking in the companies, the CSO was like, ah, that happened because they didn't have a batch management program and didn't have AV on the SCADA system. I'm like, what are you talking about? And so it was out of a very like, strong desire for my son to have lights and water when he grows up. I was like, oh, we need to make a software company to like codify knowledge on this. And we're also going to go have smart people on staff to do like response and things like that to inform that. And so, yeah, you're, you're spot on of, of, of where that came from. I have, you mentioned something that I wanted to like, just kind of get more information about. You said something about how um, like in particularly in industrial security, there's this focus on like proactive or preventative. Like if there's a focus on security, there's an emphasis on this proactive preventative preventative approach, but a lack of emphasis on detection and response. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I have a background in uh, mostly application security. Industrial security is something that I still have a lot to learn on. And when you said that, it got me really interested and and curious like why is that why is there this disconnect because it, it does seem like a lot of other areas of security there's plenty of uh of of focus on detection and response yeah i think if you look in the like the one percent of the community if you look at the larger companies out there um you will find that they are doing prevention detection and response and there is a lot of discussion we get we all get involved in the infosec circles we talk about detection response. It's some of the sexier stuff you get into, right? It's fun. It's exciting. Even though prevention, there's a lot of the hard work you got to do. It, but if you actually look at the standards in the broader community, not even IT or OT right now, it is extraordinarily prevention bias where, you know, whether it's from the NIST cybersecurity framework, the top 20 critical controls that come out of CIS, you look at, you know, NERC SIP on electric power regulation side of the house, whatever it is, 
it's all preventative or, or heavily preventative. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One, sometimes we've talked ourselves into like a pound up prevention is where, you know, it's like, okay, whatever. There's some like anecdotal crap that's got thrown in there. Some of it has been well-intentioned of, Hey, look at all these attacks. How do we stop the attack? And it's like, Oh, you should have used multi-factor authentication, which is an awesome control. Um, but people don't have the larger discussion of like that. And I hate to use the buzzword, but like that kill chain kind of view of, eh, regardless of the stopping the attack, what all places did we have an opportunity to disrupt it, to collect data and understand it and to respond to it? And so I don't know that outside of like leading companies in general, that people are actually all that focused on detection and response, IT or OT. In OT, though, it's been magnified by the belief for a long time that those environments were disconnected, that that fuzzy word air gap has been thrown out time and time again. And gets defined a million different ways by people, um, but it's not real regardless. If you're not operating a nuclear power generation site, you don't have an air cab. Um, but either way, they did exist at one point. And, and, you know, not to go on too long of a diatribe here, but if you go back to 1998, Presidential Directive 63 came out of the Clinton administration and said, you need to protect critical infrastructure. And they said, hey, asset owners and operators our critical infrastructure is vulnerable to cyber attack. That, you know, that doesn't seem like a sexy statement, but that's a big statement, especially in 98. And it's a big statement for a, a country, a leading superpower to say, we know we're vulnerable to the cyber attack. That's a big message to our adversaries. And they said, look, as an asset owner in the private sector, you operate our electric water, oil and gas, you know, manufacturing infrastructure. It's not government owned. We can't do anything about it. Therefore, if you want to go reduce cyber risk from a business impact, you do as much or as little as you want but you can't skirt your responsibilities from a national security perspective. You got to do enough on the national security front. And when that happened, there's not a CEO or board out there that said, screw them. You know, they all said, Oh, let's do it. Let's, let's invest in cybersecurity. And they turned to their staffs, which were generally at that time, CIOs. They didn't have a whole lot of CSOs that were running around the companies at that point. There were some, but not, not as many as today. And, the, and it was all well-intentioned. None of it was malicious. The CIOs went to their security staffs, which were just, you know, sort of uh, spinning up and they went to their VP of operations and plant managers and so forth. And well-intentionally, the plant side of the house largely said, what are you talking about? Like, we're, we're not connected to the internet. We're not using the applications you're talking about. Like, you've got a limited budget and a whole lot of work in front of you. Why don't y'all focus on that? We're, we're disconnected. The risk isn't really here for us. And so immediately everything got started spending on the website, the, the you know, domain controller, the enterprise side of the house, the PCs, et cetera. And they never revisited that. And in 1998, that was probably true. By 2006, 2007, a lot of those environments are getting connected up. By 2015, we, it's a buzzword, but we had that whole digital transformation thing starting to happen. And that was where these plant environments really were taking advantage of hyper-connectivity, cloud resources, interactions directly to the, uh, the vendors and the supply chain for optimization, predictive maintenance, turbine monitoring systems, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So... At one point in time, it was, uh, well, just disconnect it and keep it disconnected and we're okay. And that's a prevention thing. The reality of the business is you can't do it. So some people look at an air gap and go, yeah, that's stupid. No, actually, an air gap is a great security control if you could actually maintain one and have one. But if you are running a modern business, it's impossible. So let's get it off to the side and go, well, now that we have all this, what else do we do? Some of those preventative controls make sense in OT. If you can roll out multi-factor authentication for remote access, you should be doing it. But then what are we going to do to get network visibility and monitoring to see system-to-system -system interactions and communications? And how do we respond to this? And more importantly, 
I got to be aligned from a board level on down on what those response scenarios need to be. What are the questions we're going to need to ask from a compliance, um, uh, legal and regulatory, business risk, national security risk, et cetera? What are the questions we're going to ask in the response, which is going to determine what kind of response scenarios we need to plan for, which is going to determine what collection we need in the first place, which is going to set our detection strategy, which then should inform what we need to make sure we prevent that we don't have to deal with. And a lot of people go, let me roll in my prevention, then I'll get to detection, then I'll get to response. And by the end, it's all misaligned. Right. It reminds me of like, I think there's been uh, some shift, at least I, I I feel like something that I've started to see a little bit more in the last few years from my perspective in cybersecurity is this emphasis on like threat modeling and risk, risk-based risk testing and, and just security in general, right? Like this risk-informed perspective. And it sounds like, um, you know, that's even like it's important in every industry like it's it's really so important to know like you've talked about like okay we can do all of this but like why what's the most important what's the what's what are we actually securing but it sounds like that's just so much more important when yes. we're talking about industrial security especially because many of these companies are very mature companies but they haven't gone down that OT security journey yet they're new to it and we don't have time to reinvent the last 20 years of infosec it's got to be more targeted, more tailored. Hey, I don't care about your 20 controls. What are the five that are going to be most impactful that we can get this rolled out quickly? And so taking a risk-based approach and having an understanding of your threat model is incredibly important to that. You know, I, I remember going out a couple years ago doing an assessment at a facility back back when my teams would still let me do an assessment. Now they give me the elevator eyes and like, okay, sit down and stick to the power <laughs> Who are you guys? Anyways, back, back when I was relevant, um, I, I, I went and did this assessment at a, at a hydroelectric facility out in the middle of nowhere. No CCTV, nothing else, gate guards, everything was there, but it was out in the middle of nowhere. And we go in, and there's a sticky note with a password on the human-machine interface that allows somebody to interact with the um, the turbine piece of the, the uh, hydroelectric facility. And the IT security person from the company I was with was like, oh, my gosh, this is a write-up. I can't believe they've done this. I'm like, why? Why do you care? They're like, what? It's a password, the sticky note. I'm like, so? Like, well, somebody walks in here, they get access to the system. I'm like, who's walking in here? And like, oh, we have pen tests to do that. I'm like, well, hold on now. Are you developing your threat model on pen testers? Or are you worried that Russians are paratrooping into the substation and like bypassing <laughs> your gate guards and getting in and like a sticky note? We got it. Like it, the biggest risk here is that operator who needs to be on top of a safety critical device that if he's not monitoring it could have a life impact can't access the system. So he's either going to not put a password on it, put a crappy password on it, or write the complex password down. And in these scenarios, I want him to write the complex password down. And so it, it you know, sometimes we we get trained by the wrong inputs instead of thinking about what is the risk, what is the point, and what is the threat model. If you're a power company and you haven't planned at a tabletop exercise at a board level and already implemented your controls on the two different Ukraine scenarios, your testimony in front of Congress when you get uh, called up is going to be bad. If you are an oil and gas pipeline or a manufacturing company and you haven't had ransomware scenarios at a board level with an understanding of what you're doing specifically in OT, your liability and your lawsuit is going to be bad. Like there's certain ones that are obvious. Do I care that there was new research at DEF CON released about hacking Bluetooth to spin up a wind turbine and then it caught on fire? I don't care <laughs> at all. Like I, I care that those other scenarios have literally happened and 
now you're in trouble if you're not covered. You're behind if you haven't done those. But have you not rolled out SBOM discussions yet because it's now interesting and emerging? That's okay. You got time. Is it interesting? Go for it. Yes. If you haven't done it, your testimony in front of Congress will be okay. Don't worry. To those points that you just made, and there was something that you mentioned a moment ago, which was uh, discussing national security and have you done enough? Are you doing enough, right? With with uh, regard to national security. And so I just kind of want to pose that question to you based off of your vast experience as well as you know uh, the many operations your company has conducted since then and continues to perform for the industry. Um, are we doing enough from a national security perspective currently? Yeah, the, the answer is no. Um, however, there's lots of nuance there, right? And I think what normally happens is when somebody like me gets in front of Congress or the press, or whatever else, and is able to say no, that's the thing that gets captured. I'm gonna, I'm, I don't know if you hear the dogs in the background, it's gonna disrupt everything as things walk by. But we can keep going. Congratulations, to all the listeners in the world. I have dogs. Um, but uh, <laughs> when, you, when I say no, people sort of capture it there and go, oh my gosh, these companies are not doing enough. And that's not the right takeaway. The answer is still no. But sometimes there's economic drivers, regulatory reasons, all sorts of reasons that it's not. As an example, if you're a uh, investor-owned utility, so you're one of the largest 60 to 70 utilities in the country, and you're you've got the budget and you've got the resources, and FERC has come out and said, "Hey, you can do rate recovery and all these things." You better be doing a lot. But are you the one of 55,000 water? treatment facilities or water water plants in general it's not just treatment but water plants in general that you know your oldsmar florida so oldsmar florida oldsmar florida got uh, called out when an attacker tried to get in and poison um the citizens in oldsmar florida through an attack on the ot side of the house they're a small site they're probably don't even have an it staff let alone a security staff probably sharing an it person with three or four other water utilities that's pretty normal why? Because they're not able to increase the rate of the water bill. And if you're trying to explain to a small town, well, Russia could do X or China could do Y or Iran, could, it's not going to have them increase the water bill by a cent, let alone 10 cents. And they're literally not able to. You want to complain about pipelines. Okay, well, pipelines in certain regions, um, because they have a monopoly in certain areas, are rate regulated. They're not allowed to charge more than a certain set price for that gas. Well, guess what comes out of that? Security. And so there are some companies that are negligent that we come across. They're rare, though. And there are some that should be doing a heck of a lot more. But there's a lot more that want to do more, but the system isn't allowing them to do more. And, and that's where we need to have conversations about roles and responsibility of government and how, you know, how do we you know, message this. Do, you know, every single utility, gas, water, and electric, has a public utilities commission inside that state that regulates how much they spend, what they spend it on, how much the rates are, et cetera. Does every single company need to go to every single PUC in every single state to have this conversation? Or couldn't the federal government lean in and go, hey, we're not trying to you know, disrupt your state autonomy, but let's have a Inter, like let's have a national discussion about how we want to think about the cybersecurity investments for OT that manifest anything into safety and reliability of the services and goods we provide. So uh, speaking about testifying in front of Congress and, and ransomware, uh, I actually wanted to talk to you about this. Uh, so last year you testified in front of Congress about the ransomware problem uh, and specifically how it's growing. It's a growing threat for critical infrastructure. Um, and you said at the time that Dragos responded to numerous ransomware incidents in OT that have gone unreported, mm -hmm. uh, which is, is really interesting to hear. So 
considering that, is the general problem of ransomware uh, and the risk that it poses to the public, is that a lot worse than, you know, we realize? A lot worse, yeah. Um, and so we've had a lot of close calls on some pretty important critical infrastructure as well. Uh, and uh, look, so again, without, I never like to be the fear guy. There's there's a lot of good stuff happening. And again, you know, hug a lineman and, uh, uh, you know, say thanks to the IT security teams that are usually at these sites working. They're, they're understaffed and they're, they're keeping lights and water on. Um, but when you look at these companies and we take some of the things we've already talked about here in this discussion today, heavy reliance on prevention, a misalignment sometimes at the board, uh, a heavy belief that environments are disconnected. Well, ransomware is just doubling down on those beliefs versus the reality. And so it's not anything different half the time, but it's, oh, this environment, nobody has to understand what's in it. Nobody's monitoring it. Nobody knew what was in the environment, in their inventory. And, oh, there's rogue access devices. And, hey, that VPN that got stood up for that connectivity that we didn't even think about, all these things now get taken advantage of by ransomware actors. And the next thing you know, you've got um, ransomware across your oper operations environment. And sometimes it's not all that impactful. And sometimes it's a close call and we're lucky the infrastructure stayed up. Sometimes the infrastructure didn't stay up, but those companies were able to move things around to have the production line of the manufacturing, whatever else, still produce what was supposed to be produced but somewhere else. Sometimes it didn't happen. And there's some interesting SEC filings out there around, you know, shareholder um, uh, value and so forth that could be tied back to, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in damages related to ransomware cases that aren't all that public. And to me, that the initial response I get from a lot of people is why, and I think we've covered that pretty well. And the second response I usually get, and this one from Congress as well, is, well, then they need to report those things. And and there was this whole discussion in Congress, bipartisan support for uh, instant response reporting bill um, last year that didn't pass. And I'm glad it didn't pass. And I'm probably one of the few <laughs> that's saying that publicly. There's a lot privately, but I was saying it publicly because it did have bipartisan support. And there was some really good and smart people out there at CSA and others who I like and respect that were really advocating for this. But my, I had two fundamental problems with the reporting bill. Uh, and number one, it wasn't scoped very well. Because when you're telling people to report an incident, then it gets into well, what's an incident and what's this and what's that. And people tried to play the tech game of, well, if it hits this type of system or it's ransomware or if it's a state actor and, and there's perverse incentives that can happen. And then there's things like, well, don't identify if it's a state actor or not, because then we might have to report this or should we report every scan on a system or should it only be exploitation? Should it only be exploitation of critical systems? And so it gets into all these fundamental questions, which I think we could have bypassed by saying, hey, you're a critical infrastructure because of the goods and services you provide, not the types of systems you have. If there's an incident that can impact the services and goods you provide, you got to report that. So like scoping it differently could have been very easy. And there's already precedents for that and regulations like NERCSIP for that. We could have just copy and pasted. The other problem I have, though, is what's the value? And people are like, wait, what do you mean? Like, OK, we reported it. Now what? What what intrinsic good is there to come to the public or that company from reporting an incident to the government. What's the value back? Because there's resources getting dedicated that's going to manifest in your light bill or your uh, the cost of your manufactured good. I know what's the value. I know there are some organizations who also have an adverse view of 
the government for whatever reason, right? And they feel like, look, if I'm going to report this stuff, I'm going to get fined. I'm going to get, you know, maybe maybe charged with something. I'm going to get looked at as being negligent or something worse. And then there are other companies who say, look, I want to partner with the government. I want to share my information. I want to collaborate and I want to build a better infrastructure across the board. How do you bridge the gap, right, between individuals or companies, organizations who are just afraid to share information be, for for fear of retribution uh, to the companies who are bought in. Yeah, you have to actually listen, and this is the problem for the government. And and by the way, when you say the government, as you well know, with your prior service, what we talking about the post office, we talking about FERC, what are we talking about, right? The the government, but. When we talk about the government, there's a lot of different agencies and a lot of different organizations, a lot of different priorities. And there are some who have consistently been useful and helpful. And there are some who've consistently gone and tried to find those fines and retribution and so forth. And so a lot of the companies out there that have uh, not tried to partner with the government and kept them at arm's length have real documented experience on why it was bad for them in doing that. And I've been a part of a number of incidents where they contacted the government and it was bad and it it went very poorly and there was no value to anybody in bringing them in. And I've been in part of some where it was a wonderful experience, but it's hit and miss. And when it's your company and your shareholders and your community, a hit and miss, eh, probably not the time to have that discussion during an incident. And so there's a lot of apprehension. So to me, Bringing people together and listening on what are your actual concerns, let's have a closed door, real understand the problem and, and trying to get through that would be helpful. Um, and I, look, I, I think a lot of times it's pleasantries. And what well, we talk to the CEO and they really want to do, okay, well, what does the stock analyst think that has to deal with this? Yeah. You know, like it, it's not just go talk to the exec. And, you know, and I think if you were to ask me and as Congress did, it does DHS, an example, CSA, I'm a big fan of CSA writ large, but does CSA, DOE, DOD, et cetera, have roles and responsibilities to the private sector and critical infrastructure and value add? My answer is yes. But my immediate question is, what are those roles and responsibilities? Because they haven't defined them. There's a bubble chart, and I remember all that crap too, but there's not a real good, clear understanding of when do they get involved? When do they not? What goods and services they provide that aren't competitive to the private sector? Like sometimes it's it's Nemo or, or you know finding Nemo like little yeah. uh, mine 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 mine. It's it's is if this topic and everybody's doing today, that too, right? Like and everybody, FBI can come in yeah. and do your instant response. Why aren't you calling a Dragos CrowdStrike or Mandy? Yeah. Why why is taxpayer money getting used to compete with tax paying entities? That doesn't make any sense. And also they're not skilled up across every field unit to do that. There's some field offices that are phenomenal. That, by the way, There's they some can't field operate from an agile perspective like a dragos or others can yeah. as well right yeah it, i remember you know i again i i'm actually much more pro government than i ever come off but sure. because i give any sort of critiques that's the first thing that people oh, rob said something bad about the government i'm like yeah i said 15 nice things and you're focusing on the one critique i levied but the the one you know good example of the critique i remember it was rsa one year and uh one of the dhs leads got up on stage and said well, we're we're really here for when the private sector can't scale to the incident. So when you have an, a, an attack on an electric company, it's actually national security. You should be calling us and not one of these private sector companies. And so when she got off stage, I just nicely went up to her and I was like, cool. How many incident responders do you have in your organization that know OT? Well, you know, and I was like, how many? She said, well, I, well, four. And I was like, cool, I've got 40. So why don't you get back on stage and say, I'm here for when the United States government can't scale to the problem. You know, and so there's a... If you clearly go out and communicate to the asset owners and operators of here is a lane for me yeah. 
And this is what I can do. And you can depend on me to do those things. And we're going to put protections in place to not have these bad things happen. The government would find that there is an overt desire to partner with the government and, and prepare for those types of things. But when you don't really know and you don't have SLAs and you don't have identification documents, you don't have anything, you don't have any standards you don't have on legislation. How is this going to go? Yeah, absolutely. You don't know if they're going to be there when you need them and what their role and responsibility is and who yeah. does what and who does. Then, of course, you're not going to leverage that. And it has nothing. It's not anti-government. It's just you wouldn't depend on somebody undependable in a critical national infrastructure emergency. And so that's, yeah, my, my advice on bridging it is clearly Congress should help clearly defined because this is where CISA gets <laughs> short into the stick and I feel so bad for them is everything is a CISA thing. If, if there's any issue that Congress wants to talk about with cybersecurity, CISA, why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you doing election security? Why aren't you doing misinformation? Why aren't you doing this? Yeah. And then they, hell, they had some cybersecurity people they deployed down to the, the border wall discussion in the last administration. Like, oh, they're doing that now too. You know, and so it's, it's like they're the bully whip for anything related to security and cyber. CISA is supposed to have an answer. And that's not fair to them. They're wonderful people, but they, they don't have an infinite budget and resources. What do we want them to do? Let's carve that out. And whatever it is, it's theirs. But whatever it's not, now we have clarification that there should be markets that form and go do those other things. To shift gears slightly, um, I know we've been discussing a little bit about some of the things that have you know gone wrong or could be better inside of um, this whole systematic approach to addressing OT issues. Um, Specifically speaking about operational technology and malware these days, right? Uh, previously, you're going to be seeing tons and tons of malware specifically being developed for, say, Windows or for, say, those traditional um, information technology systems. Um, when you're seeing a huge uptick in operational technology and focus around that, are you, in addition, seeing a huge uptick in the malware that's being purposefully created for OT? No. No. And so are there ICS specific malware families? Yep, right. So Stuxnet, Havex, Black Energy 2, Crash Override, Trisis, and Ekans were, were six families of ICS capable malware, and two or three of those could be re repurposed and used in large ways other places. Um, and so does it exist? Sure. But it's not necessary for most of the things. If you're going to cause physical destruction, long-term impacts, things like that, you probably want a tool to help you, and that's going to be malware, and you know, can help you in those cases. By and large, whether it's espionage, short-term disruptions, maybe even some smaller disruptions not um, sustained, you don't need it. It's that functionality we were talking about. So I could use IT malware to get access, and then it's kind of living on the land with that native functionality moving across the environments. Most of the cases we respond to, the malware is the least interesting piece of it. But that's where a lot of InfoSec wants to focus is vulnerabilities, yeah. exploits, malware. And it's, it's, so it's like patching. Patching is not useless, but it's one of the least important security controls in ICS. But it's one of the first things that people get hit over the head with. Oh, you have a vulnerable window system. Like, okay, now make the lights blink. I don't know. Like, what, what, what am I doing with that? And so, you know, we've we got to have some mature conversations here. And I think we will see more of it in the future. Like what's the real world impact there, here? Sort of yeah. Thing. And like, where? Yeah. 
we've seen like Ekans as an example used in ransomware cases where it was tuning in on various ICS Windows processes, and that's interesting. But there could be some really interesting use cases of bricking certain types of controllers, mass, you know, issues down the control level. You know, there, there's all stuff you could do. Um, I don't think many of us want to get out publicly and be like, well, here's exactly what you do to take all this down. But but there's there's some scenarios where malware has a place. By and large, though, it's get access and then have people that understand industrial environments get into those and you can achieve your operations. We've been talking a lot about the threat to critical infrastructure um, and particularly like what that looks like in the United States, how we are prepared for it or not, and and who's involved. Um, but we also talked a little bit earlier about how some of the major or like most well-known attacks on utilities uh, happened overseas, like Stuxnet, uh, the Ukrainian power grid, uh, Saudi Aramco in Saudi Arabia. Um, those are all happening overseas. Uh, are you seeing more growth, um, you know, with your company, but also with this field in general um, overseas uh, or or maybe not just growth, but urgency as well in protecting critical infrastructure um, compared to the U.S.? Yeah, absolutely. And so there's there's different regional um, differences and we can talk about those. But um, by and large, the awareness is there in some places. The awareness is more. Like I, I also sit on the World Economic Forum and they stood up a World Economic Forum CEO level buy-in committee explicitly on electric and oil and gas. And it was focused almost entirely on OT cybersecurity. And so when the World Economic Forum with CEOs and state leaders around the world is taking on an issue, you, you know it's got some awareness. So it's it's there and we're seeing some urgency. However, I would say maturity and this is where I don't want to put any customers and companies and countries down, but just to have an honest, candid, transparent conversation, the awareness generally gets informed by two places. One, you either have really close ties with an intelligence community and government that historically have been really good about informing the, the private sector about what they see. So where do you see a lot of maturity? The Five Eyes countries, UK, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, United States. Their, their government... And private sector have been collaborating. Forget the services and the goods and stuff we were talking about earlier. Awareness, briefing at a board level, sharing the insights they see, that's been phenomenal. It's been there and it's helped raise the profile of it. The second place is you got attacked and you see those attacks, you go, ah, that's a big deal. So all across the Gulf Coast cooperation, right, the GCC, the Middle East, you won't find a company that doesn't isn't they you know they they can point to their threat actors on a map they know where they are you know they they they're well aware that they're coming after them the the problem then is the maturity and the culture in those organizations to have this discussion i was able to get in front of that fortune 50 and say hey ceo your whole expectations is off and when they left the room they were still proud of that cso for all the work they've been doing and now they're readjusting how many companies around the world do they have that level of maturity that they don't turn around and be like, oh, you misled us and blah, so on and so on. And now there's a culture of almost hiding things and, hey, let's not service this up to the board level. And, well, let's fix this first and then we'll show it and it never gets done or resourced appropriately. So I would say the United States, and I hope this isn't just a Western bias, but I would say the United States infrastructure companies I work with on the whole are much more mature than anywhere else in the world for those reasons and the culture that gets built there. 
Um, I would say there are other regions, Australia, New Zealand, you know, Saudi Arabia, uh, UAE, UK, Germany, other places that they're coming up really quickly. Um, but I am very worried in some of those places about the copy and paste from IT mindset. I don't see it as much in the GCC. I see it a whole lot in Europe of, well, here's these ISO standards and here's this and here's that. And we should just apply these standards and copy and paste it over to OT. And it's like, God, no, 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 no. I'd rather you do nothing. Did you check than your, take box? your you know, more. Absolutely. More power sites have been taken down from well-intentioned yeah. IT people than Iran, China, and Russia combined. You know, please, please don't do the bad stuff. You know, either do it right or don't do it So a question around taking things down, right? <clears throat> when attackers or nation states or malicious entities, whatever you want to f- refer to them as, right? Obviously, nation states have a lot of backing and a lot of resources and a lot of uh, time at their disposal to focus towards these things. That being said, I'm curious around the specific types of TTPs or tactics, uh, techniques that you, uh, your company is identifying and how that directly relates to what MITRE is putting out with regard to the OT space. Are they relevant? Mm -hmm. Are they different? And how does that tie together? Absolutely. So MITRE, they're different. MITRE had their enterprise attack, right? And uh, it was really good. And I was really glad to see that come out. And actually, I think I'm not speaking out of school here to say a lot of that originated in the NSA early in the days. And, and then MITRE did a really good job of picking up and making it really good. And then got community buy-in and published it out. And a lot of wonderful people really took it and ran with it. And it was a good resource. But it's a lexicon. It's an ability to have conversations between people and analysts. It's not if you uh, do this T133, whatever, you know, we're done. No, there's analytical breadth and analytical depth. Analytical breadth is do you have coverage across the tactics? Analytical depth is how many different ways can you prevent, detect, or respond to those different tactics and the different ways they manifest. And so MITRE did a great job of launching MITRE attack for ICS. And they engaged us and uh, I'm sure others. And we contributed all of our public knowledge and others contributed theirs and fleshed out the 70 or 80 tactics and techniques specific to ICS. And on the surface, I've seen some pushback from people going, that's lateral movement. I'm like, yes, we also have lateral movement in ICS. Well, I could just do that with my IT stuff. I'm like, no. Um, in your environment, you might do lateral movement over these protocols. In our environment, we might use lateral movement over OPC between two controllers. And so the the high-level language in many ways can overlap. But the way that you actually implement and the detections and the prevention and the response of those things changes drastically. And so I, I would say that there is some overlap. Otherwise, it is fairly unique and and you know, what was fun for us, because we are biased, we like ICS, we think ICS is special, you know, my Intel team stood, uh, sat down when MITRE reached out about this, and we tried to disprove it first. And we said, can we take all the incidents and the threats we have and fit them into enterprise attack? Do we really need yet another thing? Because, you know, people are tired of yet another framework or standard. Do you really need something different? And we proved to ourselves, you had to have something different. Here was these 70 or 80 unique tactics and techniques you needed to articulate as, as well. And it's going to grow over time as we get more visibility in these attacks. Because, you know, to one of the earlier comments, we see a lot when the attacks are taking down an electric system in Ukraine. We don't see a lot when it's preparation and espionage and so forth. 
And we hear a lot about compromises in electric utilities because they're pretty mature and they're looking. We don't hear a lot about that in mining companies. Is it the, in, the adversaries aren't interested in mining or is it that most of those companies haven't started their OT security programs yet? And so we're not seeing that. And so I, you know, I usually joke with people, we have the equivalency of like Schrodinger's ICS. There's a lot of us that need to start opening up the box to figure out what's going on. So I want to talk a little bit about something that I think we often end up talking about on this podcast is like uh, working in tech and cybersecurity, just like what that's like. And um, I saw something interesting uh, on I think I, I thought I think I saw it on your Twitter uh, that you've really emphasized compensation transparency at Dragos. Um, and I wanted to know why that's important for you and how compensation transparency affects employees or future employees or like. You know, the industry. Which is a huge topic yeah. right now, by the way, interestingly enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I love doing stuff that everyone says you shouldn't do. <laughs> if that's not a theme in my life. Everyone's like, ah, oh, you shouldn't do ICS. No, no, you won't market won't move and people don't care and blah blah blah. And it's like, well, let's do it anyways. And then everyone's like, Oh, ICS is big. And then we pay transparency. They're like, Oh, you can't do that. People poach your people, whatever. Like, they're not my people. They're, you know, what, what are you talking about? And it's like, of course we should. And so Anyways, there, there's a lot of stuff that Dragos that we do that's different, and some of it's smart, I'm sure. Some of it's probably not. Um, you know, back in the day, we we uh, we don't have capture forms. If it's a white paper, webinar, whatever else, I always hated putting my email for people. I was like, screw it. We're not going to do it. If they like it, what we do, thank you for the time to go read it. They'll come back and contact us. All my marketing people originally, oh, you can't do that. We'll sacrifice leads. I'm like, ah, we won't do it. And the next thing I know, I turn around and other companies start copying it because people are tweeting, you know, angrily at these other companies. Well, Dragos doesn't do it. And I'm like, okay, it's working. Um, but to, to your point, one, a couple of the things we do around pay. Number one, um, we have complete pay transparency. So uh, on our applications on the job website, we list exactly what the salary is. And then we tell you, in addition, here's how we value the equity and the benefits and everything else. And that's the total compensation package. So you get to make an informed choice. And um, there's no negotiations. It's, it is that package. If that package works for you, great. Um, if it doesn't, don't apply. And what that's done besides the obvious of helping some people self-select out, which has its pros and cons, um, is it also abuses, it also sort of avoids some of the classic abuse. Now, we still have to monitor everything else as well. You don't get out of sexism, racism, biases, et cetera, in one fell swoop, but it helps put a dent in it to say, you know what, historically, by any research we can find, uh, white men tend to be more aggressive in negotiating compensation packages than uh, people that are in some level underrepresented. Uh, and we remove that. We say, screw it. You know, if, if you can do that position, then you should be getting that pay. Let's take out the negotiation of it. And another thing we do is that pay is the same that that person makes internally. And if you're in that career path, so let's say you're one of our engineers or one of our service analysts or whatever else, you have full pay transparency, even up to the VP of L1 through L10. Here's what everybody in my career path makes. And what that allows is more informed choices. So you can sit there and go, hey, if I got promoted three times, what would I be making? And now you can make it a choice of if it's worth around, you know, worthwhile to stick around and, and, and you can have an informed choice and then you're not bitter about it. You may leave sooner, you may stay longer, but you're not upset about it because you had all the information to make a good choice. But if we decide, and we do this all the time, where we might find that the market's changed and it's changing a lot in like engineering. 100% of our engineers are in the United States. We don't outsource anything where they're related to our product because if we're deploying a software into like nuclear power yep. plants and similar, I'd like control of the supply chain. It's not that I have anything against other countries' teams, but I'd like to have full control over it. So 100% of our developers in the United States and the United States engineering market is 
intense. Uh, and so every now and then we have to adjust. But if we adjust to go get someone new, everybody internally at that level also gets that same adjustment. So then nobody ever feels that they got screwed over or whatever else. And routinely people are getting pay bumps that they weren't even, you know, articulating or negotiating for because that's what the market said. Um, now, we never take it down either. If the market changes down, it only net benefits you. So I feel that while we may not be the highest paying always compared to everybody, like somebody came along and said, hey, Amazon's offering this person 60K more. I was like, yeah, they're, they're a little bit bigger than us. It's okay. You know, <laughs> I hope the intangibles of the value of our equity and the work from home aspect that we've always had, the culture, everything else is enough. But if it's not, that's fine. Good on you. Thank you for being a Drago's alumni. Have fun. You know, we wanted this to be a step in your career. We don't expect you to stick around for 20 years. Um, and so I just, I believe in letting people have all the information to make informed choices. And if they do that, then they're going to be happier, more productive. Uh, you know, they're going to be better team members. And, and when it's their time to leave, they're going to do it on their terms. And it's going to be a good discussion. Um, and so, yeah, pay transparency, uh, level transparency, job descriptions for everything, uh, no more than three interviews. We don't waste your time. You know, it, we, we do a number of things to just try to make this easier. And we did it because we felt it was the right thing to do. But in the backside, it also turns out we now start having data to go, oh, it's actually also beneficial to the company. I think that's a huge step in the right direction. So first off, uh, for what it's worth, I'd like to commend you on that. I think it's hugely mature of you and your organization. And um, I appreciate that. So a um, little bit of a switch because we're coming up uh, a little bit. Uh, I wanted to ask you, lastly, a question that we ask all of our guests, which is also something that we ask uh, new personnel here as well. Uh, without, you know, what's something that we couldn't tell from you by looking at your LinkedIn profile or company bio? No. Um, it, it's going to be a cliche uh, thing, I'm sure. But I'm, I mean, I am massively introverted. And like people see me author Sans classes, get up on stage and keynote places and whatever else and do all this stuff. And they, I think they assume that like limelight or whatever else. My happy places sweatpants at home with my wife, uh, my three-year-old. We don't talk. We just sit in a room, drink some tea, enjoy life. Like I, I can't stand talking to people, hanging out, doing anything like that. And so <laughs> I enjoy these types of things because it's value to the community and people can learn things and all that. But um, it, it's not that I dislike anybody when they're like, oh, let's meet up sometime. Let's go to the bar and do whatever. I've, I don't think I've ever accepted it, uh, one of those. <laughs> um, I, it's not that I don't like the person. I just, I really don't. I'm, I, I get my energy from being alone, yeah. not from any of this. It's again, I, I want my kid to have lights and water, so I'm willing to do yeah. it. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for your time. I've got a three year old as well. I, actually, I'm I'm doing uh, dad duty right yeah, now good as, for you, as man. I'm babysitting yeah. uh, while she's sleeping. So yeah, man, uh, three year old daughter. That's really awesome. Again, I'm really stoked that you even came on the show. Thank you so much for your time. And um, yeah, this was a great conversation. If you liked today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and subscribe wherever you're listening to this. It'll really help us get noticed on your favorite podcast platforms. Also, share this episode with your friends. And if you haven't already, make sure to check out all the other really fascinating people that we've already interviewed. We're also open to suggestions. If you know someone we should be talking to, drop us a line at we'reinpodcast at synac.com. That's we'reinpodcast at S-Y-N-A-C-K dot com. We're In is brought to you by Synac. If you're looking for on-demand, continuous access to the world's most skilled and trusted security researchers, you can learn more at Synac.com. Synac recently launched its Empower Partner Program so that partner organizations can more easily offer the Synac pen testing platform to their own customers. 
This approach helps optimize Synac partners' technical competencies and allows them to better integrate Synac into their portfolios. It's a way that partners can win new business by adding continuous, best-in-class solutions to cybersecurity, cloud, and DevSecOps offerings. Synac partners with organizations around the world to make them safer, more resistant to cyber attacks, and more capable of finding and fixing dangerous vulnerabilities before attackers are able to exploit them. Learn more at synac.com. That's S-Y-N-A-C-K dot com.